Thanks, Mandy. Shall we pray? Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Father, we thank you that your word is the sword of the Spirit, and we pray now, as we look at this passage together, you will help us and that you will guide us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've given you a a handout that you might find useful. Um, I'm not very good at technical, so I couldn't really get it back to back. So so I've just folded it over. Um, But you might find that useful um, as we go through. Um, I wonder whether you can guess the source of those words that I've put at the top of the page. We present you this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Anyone? Nigel. It is indeed. It's the coronation service of our Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Who was there? <laughs> Just a few. Um, this, is the, uh, this is said to the Queen... The most valuable thing this world affords, referring to the Bible. After she took the oath, with her hand on the Bible, she was presented with another Bible. Uh, And I wonder how many people in Great Britain today would consider the Bible as the most valuable thing this world affords. Strong language, isn't it? It's a challenging question probably for us. We might say it, but do we live it? So the first thing I want to look at tonight is what does the Word of God do? Um, What does the Word of God do? I'm going to look at a few things here. Let's look at Timothy. Timothy had come to faith and had that background that some of us have enjoyed. Um, Had a godly mother, Eunice, and a godly grandmother, Lois. And you can read about that in um, chapter 1. And verse 14 alludes to this fact. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. I know this is not everyone's experience, um, but I can remember for myself, um, and you may have had this experience, uh, I remember at home with great clarity my mother standing on the landing of our house uh, in Suffolk when I was younger, and she was reading the scriptures to us and praying. I remember that very vividly, her doing that. And it had a tremendous impact on me. And an interesting um, aside on this hearing the scriptures in a, in a world where we're so used to the visual. And there's an interesting aside, reading an article in the New York Times from 2015 about an American um, uh, uh, pediatrician, Perry Klass, who entitled an article, Bedtime Stories for Young Brains. And it presented findings showing how reading to children, even infants, was absolutely crucial for brain development. And they found exposing children to video uh, or to picture short circuits the child's imagination. One expert said they're not having to imagine the story 
It's just fed to them. I'm not having a go at tablets and things and phones. We live in that world. But you, you get the point. In short, verbal communication makes your mind and heart do the work of grasping and imagining the story. Images tend to feed you with what some other person has imagined or created. That's why I have a bit of a love-hate with PowerPoint. I sometimes use it, I sometimes don't, for that very um, reason. This supports that biblical understanding about the power of the word to capture our hearts in a way that nothing else can. I've wondered, I've speculated, whether this is one of the reasons that you have the second commandment. You know what the second commandment is? Not to make a graven image of God. Why? Because it is through hearing the word that the Holy Spirit is given rain to illuminate the mind and the heart to the glory of God through a more perhaps vivid and imaginative way. I don't know, that's a bit of a speculation, but I throw that in for free. (laughs) The application, though, here, isn't it, is straightforward. Um, Especially parents and parents and grandparents, but all of us, um, about teaching children the faith like Eunice and Lois. And we all have a responsibility in that. And that's um, one of the reasons we have made such an unashamed focus on the next generation. It's wonderful to see Hannah um, picking up part of that vision. This morning, um, Matt got people to put up their hands if they became a Christian. I think it was before 18, something like that. Was it 10? Something like that. It was about two-thirds of the congregation put their hand up. I can tell you that Care for the Family, in their research, survey records 72% of people become to faith before the age of 18. So, you know, there is a lot of sense about this being very crucial. It's not the whole picture, but it's very important. Verse 14 also reminds us that it's not simply about knowledge and understanding. It's not just simply about filling our heads with facts. It's actually about... um, Becoming convinced. That's a lot what the case for Christ is, is about, I think, and, and what we're doing there. Convinced of the truth. And secondly, about putting your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Look at the second half of verse 15. It's the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So having reminded Timothy of this, Paul then goes on in verse 16 to reinforce the wonder of what we have in the pages here of Scripture. Notice in verse 15 he calls them holy scriptures here. He's referring to specifically the Old Testament. But now in verse 16 he does something more. He says all Scripture. I think that's quite interesting the fact he uses the word all here. All Scripture is God-breathed. And by that he's referring to the New Testament writings as they were coming to be from the apostles and like Paul, John, Peter and their close associates. And the implications here for Timothy is made clear at the end of the the section. So that the man of God may be thoroughly, the word there is completely, completely equipped for every good work. So although specifically uh, Paul is writing to Uh, a pastor teacher as in Timothy, but we can apply this, can't we, to all of us. Paul is readying Timothy 
as he's about to depart the scene. He's a young man. There are the challenges of a non-believing environment in Ephesus, which is where he was. And there's the infiltrators. If you read back in the letter, you'll find all the infiltrators and the false teachers who were um, uh, trying to deflect him. And he says, be thoroughly (coughs) equipped. How does he do this? He says to him, you've got everything you need here in the scriptures. Um, It's coming up to ten years since I was ordained. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, (coughs) June the 29th uh, will be ten year anniversary. And every minister uh, stands before the bishop. (coughs) And um, a Bible is presented... And this is, <clears throat> this is my ordination Bible. And it says it at the very front. It says, Receive this book as a sign of the authority given to you this day to speak God's word to his people. Build them up in the truth and serve them in his name. Timothy is shortly going to lose access to the Apostle Paul. So you must pay close attention to the scriptures. So the Bible is the source of gospel ministry. It is priority. It is foundational. It is authoritative. It's sufficient. It's powerful. I think it's it's way more powerful than I think we sometimes know and realize. If we lose confidence ever in this book, then I'm afraid it's game over. That's quite a strong thing to say, isn't it? But we must be convinced of it. You will not see, um, if we're not convinced, you won't see men and women made wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, you, you, we won't see the multiplication that is part of our, our vision. You won't see the building up um, as they are trained in righteousness. This really is absolutely foundational. I know, I'm sure most of us probably would assent to that, but we really must be alert to it. Um, There's a picture here uh, of uh, a missionary um, to uh, Korea. On Friday, uh, we were talking and praying about the Korean situation, and uh, I'm sure we're all really quite positive about that at the moment. Um, and it reminded me of this uh, man, Robert Germain Thomas, who was a, who was a Welsh um, missionary. Extraordinary story. If you, ever, if you Google him, I'd encourage you to do it, because he was one of the foundational missionaries to Korea. And the story is incredible. Uh, I love missionary stories. I love reading about Elsie Marshall. If you ever read about Elsie, it's fantastic. Let me tell you about Robert in 1866, he sailed up the Tangdong River to Poinyang, a US, and he sailed on a U.S. Uh, trading ship. And as he went, he, he, as he went up the, the, this river, they, it was really hostile territory to go into. You know, the, the, these Westerners, they didn't call them that in those days, were not welcome. And he would, if he saw people on the banks, he would literally throw Bibles towards them. Have you ever thrown Bibles towards him? I know we, we get a bit worried about Bible bashing, but he, he would throw Bibles to them. The ship ran aground, and it came under attack, and he waded 
to the shore, offering his attackers the Bible, crying in Korean, Jesus, Jesus. And then he was eventually martyred by them. It's an incredible story. He was, he was a man absolutely convinced, isn't he, by the power and authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, of the most valuable thing that the world affords. It came to light at, at some years later, about 20 years later, that a local uh, man had picked up one of these Bibles and had used the pages to... Um, paper his wall in his, in his house. They didn't have big houses there, but just in, in their house. And um, people from the surrounding areas, they came to read them. And people came to faith through it. It's an extraordinary story, 15 years later. And today they reckon it's about 40% of certainly South Korea is Christian. I and mean, what an incredible story. People from Korea come back to the little chapel in Wales to find about and to read about Robert Jermaine Thomas. What a guy. Absolutely convinced of the power of Scripture, wasn't he? To do the work of God. Of the most valuable thing. Um, So that's that picture. Um, I suppose... the question is, are we similarly convinced? I'm not saying we have to throw Bibles at people. But are we have, do we have that same kind of conviction? Some of you might um, be familiar. I've, I've gone to town here. Look, I've even, uh, look, a very highbrow. I've gone Rembrandt. Um, this is a picture of Rembrandt, uh, of uh, Anna, the prophetess, um, from Luke 2. Remember that Christmas? And it's a very interesting picture, isn't it? As she sits reading the scriptures, uh, the background is all blurred and dark. It's not a great picture because it's been photocopied. She sits reading, but the light has been painted coming out from the scriptures. God's word burns bright. It opens ears that are deaf. It opens eyes that are blind. It stirs the hearts that are darkened. The scripture holds up a mirror to tell us about God, about his salvation, about who Jesus is, and what he's done for us. Are we convinced? Now, why is this? Why is the Bible so powerful? That's really our second point tonight. How does the word of God do the work of God? Let's have a look a bit more at verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And Andrew's helpfully um, began to help us think about this. Literally, scripture is breathed out by God. It's like any other book. The Bible has sold out, hasn't it? Every generation. I mean, Harry Potter might have the occasional blip into... uh, into the records of the best-selling books. But again and again throughout the generations, even in a secular world, the Bible outsells everything. 66 books written over 1,500 years by 30-plus authors, but contains an inherent unity that starts to dawn on the careful reader. Even the hard bits. 
All scripture is breathed out. The word is that in Greek uh, is only used once here in this section. It's the only place it's used. Sometimes it's translated inspired by God. But I don't think that really helps us because it slightly loses the impact. And because it's not inspiration, it's expiration. Hence that breathing out. It's expiration. It's not like the way Shakespeare was inspired. It is not the way that Shelley was inspired. It's not the way that Matt Redman... Oh, no, this is not going to be helpful, is it? (laughs) Or whoever it might be to write, okay? It's expiration from God. So it's not as if there's a pool of writing that God has poured life into, Okay, that's really important. It's not, it's not like a pool of writing he's breathed into and out of humans' uh, writings. It wasn't like a person was set at a typewriter either uh, or a scroll being dictated. They didn't have typewriters. Um, as if Isaiah went into a kind of weird hallucinogenic state. No, he was fully aware of what he was doing. It, I, this is very hard, I know, for us to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp. It's all of us to grasp. 100% human author. 100% breathed out by God. That's what it says. This is what um, the theologians call the dual authorship of the scriptures. Think for a moment. Um, we realise that no other book commands the attention of so many men and women down the ages. And it transcends gender, it transcends uh, time, intellectual capacity, it transcends the engagements of science, history, the arts, philosophy, the rule of law. It seems to transcend all those things. We may affirm this, we may know it in our heads, but we know, doesn't it, it sometimes it's hard to explain to friends. You know, it's, it's hard. And we feel a little bit on the back foot sometimes when we, we say, well, it's, it's just the word of God, it's from God, it's God-breathed, and it's hard. Can I suggest the best thing you can do if you're talking to somebody is to ask them to read it. Get them to read it. Read it with them. Ask them, would they like to read it? Can I help you read it? Um, Ask them, can you explain why this book has existed for us then? It, there is no evidence that it came down from heaven on a string. <laughs> no suggestion that someone dug it up in a desert on golden plates. doesn't say that. In fact, in, if, in, fact, in 2 Peter 1.21, I think I put that on the sheet... It says, talking about Scripture, it says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God took normal people in normal time and place and breathed out in such a way that it didn't violate, at the same time, their individual capacities. So their words were the very words of God. Concurrence. It's the fancy word, two things happening at the same time, 100% breathed out, 100% human authorship. God breathed his word into existence by his breath or by the spirit of God. Now later in the series, I can't remember if it's next, I think it's the week after, um, 
We're going to think about the dynamic of word and spirit. But I do want to just say something in connection with that now, because I think that's quite helpful in understanding this, this dynamic. Um, you might have heard somebody or some people have said something like this. We must keep the word and spirit in balance. Have you ever heard that? And I know, I know why people say that, but I actually think it's a bit of an unhelpful language. Why do I say that? Well, it can lead us, it can lead us to think, ask, whether there's too much word and not enough spirit. And the trouble with that is it's a false distinction. It's a false distinction. I sometimes think churches are kind of being watched by a kind of theological sophologist. You know what a sophologist is? um, Jeremy Vine and his (laughs) swingometer. You know, that we're perhaps being watched to see where we are on the word-spirit swingometer. (laughs) You know, maybe we've shifted a little bit too far this way. Maybe we've got to shift back a bit this way, in, in the other direction. This must be wrong from what we've just read about Scripture being God-breathed. We cannot measure the Bible and Spirit against one another. You cannot set the Bible and the Spirit side by side and say we need more of one of these and we need less of one of these. It would be like saying which is bigger, a metre or a litre. It would be like saying perhaps um, good concert... I just wish we had a bit more violin uh, and a little bit less of the violinist. <laughs> it's that kind of distinction. The di- idea of balance is all wrong. The Spirit is the sovereign God. The personal, eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. No one and nothing can be measured or balanced against him. No one. We cannot ever reach a point where we're right. Now we have enough of the spirit, let's have a bit more word. Or to say, I think we've got the balance wrong and we need to go back the other way. We need a bit more spirit. After all, all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from the Spirit of God. He is, he is one of the dual authors, God himself. So instead, I'd like to encourage us to be joyfully unbalanced. That's, I think I said that. There you go. Right at the end. Be joyfully unbalanced in this. Um, setting no limits on the extent and the depth of the Spirit's work on which we long for, I hope we long for, as he reveals God, the Father, and the Son to us through the scriptures for the purposes of, for our lives. Be joyfully unbalanced. Don't go for that balanced thing. Verse 16, finally, to, is, tells us that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We could spend a sermon on each of those, but don't worry, <laughs> we're not going to. <laughs> we just spend, um, and Paul has here two pairs, actually. You've got the first pair, teaching and rebuking, which mainly to do with right belief, what we call doctrine, 
Positively, we must teach them, teach the Bible, the word of God that's breathed out. Not just Luke and Philippians and occasionally Romans, the bits that we like and the Psalms. We've got to go to Leviticus. Maybe we'll go there one day. How do you fancy that? Deuteronomy. It would be exciting, wouldn't it? (laughs) I think so. It's God-breathed. Why? To show us salvation. To reveal who God is. And of course, more negatively, we have to rebuke occasionally error, false teaching, carefully and with love. That is not something we do lightly, but we may have to do it. Secondly, you've got the correcting and training in righteousness. This is more to do with right conduct. Correcting comes from that Greek word for, for, for straightening out. Literally, scripture is there to straighten us out. Um, it reminds me a bit like the time when you go bowling with the children and you have to have the buffers down. You've, you've been bowling. And uh, you need the scriptures are there to act like the buffers, to straighten the ball out so it keeps it straight, correcting, um, keeping it straight, and then training in righteousness. It makes us fit to do what is right to do what is good and kind. It helps us to be obedient. So there we are, the purpose of um, the word of God. Um, The Bible equips us in so many different ways. It equips us primarily for salvation, but for all of life. My question really is very simple. Do we know that? Is it it operating in our lives like that? Um, the most valuable thing the world affords. It's not just a charge to the Queen, is it? It's a charge to all of us. It's able to change us into men and women of God. Shall we just take a moment to pray, shall we? God, our Father, we thank you for this book this Bible, the most valuable thing this world affords. We thank you for it. We thank you that it is, uh, that you have brought it into being. You have breathed it out. And Father, we pray that we will be again refreshed by it and excited by it. That it will equip us and make us wise for salvation. And it will lead us in right living. Give us a hunger, we pray, for your word as your spirit inspires, illuminates us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.